Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Among the healthcare areas gaining more and more attention is women's health. According to BCG, investment in women's healthcare companies in the US surged to an all-time high of 3.3 billion US dollars in 2022. Women's health refers to a broad range of medical and wellness services specifically tailored to address the unique health concerns of women. A particular focus is on reproductive health, fertility and menopause. Technology supporting women's health can go from EHR records, telemedicine services, medical imaging, diagnostics and IVF technology, wearable devices for monitoring health, menstrual cycles, menopause symptoms, robotic surgery in gynecology and more. Today, we're going to focus on the fertility market with investor Leslie Schrock, author, entrepreneur and angel investor working at the Convergence of Health and Technology. You might find out a few surprising facts about fertility since, as it turns out, we learn way too little about it during our teen years or later. Leslie Schrock wrote two books, Bumpin', The Modern Guide to Pregnancy, which mixes the latest clinical research with latest practical advice for working families. And the second book is called Fertility Rules. It was published in June 2023 and addresses male and female fertility. In this discussion, Leslie shared her insight into key misconceptions and lack of knowledge we have around fertility, how is the market developing, what technologies she hopes to see in the future, and what investment models seem to be working so far. Enjoy the show. If you will like it, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. And also check out our newsletter, which you can find at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Now let's dive in. Leslie, hi, and thank you so much for joining this discussion on phases of digital health around fertility, technology related uh, to the area and also the investments that are going into the space. Thank you for having me. What I was prepping to for this discussion, I listened to just the previous interviews that you had and kind of struck me today, and I hope this is not going to come out the wrong way, is that basically m- most uh, interviewers were women. So I'm, I started wondering, how often do you talk to men about the topic of fertility? Not nearly enough is the answer to that. Yeah, listen, most of the time the interviewers are women because fertility is still primarily a woman's health issue, even though it shouldn't be. About half of all infertility is caused by problems in men's bodies. About a third is a combination or both of them. A third is women and a full third is just men. So you're hitting something that I talk about a lot, which is that men have to really step up and join the conversation when it comes to fertility. I must say that I was actually 
also quite surprised about that statistics. Not surprised by the statistic, but just by the fact that I didn't know about it. So what are some of the misconceptions that you observe in the fertility space and when we talk about fertility? That's certainly a big favorite because it's absolutely a huge issue. It means that a lot of men are not tested and treated. In fact, in about 25% of infertility investigations, men are never even examined, which seems pretty wild when you think about it. They're responsible for half the genetic material, and yet they are not even going to the doctor's office to get that appointment. I think the other thing that is surprising to a lot of people about men's health is that men experience age-related fertility decline as well. So it's not as sudden and perhaps disruptive as it is for women who do have declining egg quality at a certain age, but it affects men too, but no one's telling them. And I think men get a lot of crap for this because people assume that they don't care or that they are somehow trying to avoid it. And that's certainly true in some cases. It's not universally true. And actually, men want to be better partners, more involved, all of these things, especially if you look at the trends in Gen Z when it comes to fertility and pregnancy. But right now, there's really nowhere for them to go, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Where did that people lack most knowledge about reproductive health? I think it's very basic, right? It's everyone assumes if you do a, a, a cleanse, your fertility is just magically going to come back very quickly. Or for men, when you think about sperm quality, it's actually much easier to fix than women's health. Men rebuild their sperm supply around every three months. Women, once you know an egg is chromosomally abnormal, it's that way forever. But men can often do a lot with their lifestyles to fix it. Sometimes it is one thing. Sometimes it's many things. And a lot of people really, I think they look to supplements to fix all of their problems. I think they forget that it is multifactorial. Usually it's multiple things going on in some cases and that the evidence on supplements just isn't really very good anyway. So it's you should take a prenatal vitamin if you're a woman. And if you're a man, you can take a male prenatal or you can take a multivitamin. And that's really enough. But everything else comes down to all of the things we're taught as kids about eating well, well-balanced diet, sleeping, hydration, for men, avoiding saunas and steam rooms, cycling, THC use, and then also, unfortunately for them, steroids and also hair loss medication. There are some drugs that cause, in the case of steroids, it can cause permanent damage if it's used for long enough. This goes for HRTs as well. Testosterone use over a long period of time can really cause some permanent issues. And then actually Propecia causes transient fertility drops too. Generally speaking, women today have children at the later age than in the past. There's various reasons for that. But where do you see that most could be done in order to increase the awareness that if you want to have children at the later stage, maybe you should think more in advance in your 20s to freeze your eggs? And just having knowledge about that, what kind of interventions do you see we need or are already there in order to just increase the knowledge around uh, these topics and the problems that you might incur? Because we just don't want to think about that. You just don't think about it. And then maybe a lot of people regret that they didn't know the things that, they, that could help them. This problem all starts as kids. We're taught 
sex ed, right? Where we go into an awkward room with a nurse or a parent for the talk, and we're basically taught how to avoid pregnancy. But we're not actually taught how pregnancy happens. Because of the way that we teach it, because it's so wrapped up in sex, we've completely forgotten about basic biology. We don't teach kids about basic biology. When I say that, what I mean is a fertile window, meaning the few days every month when a woman can get pregnant. It's not every day. It's also not just one day, which is another thing that people falsely believe often. They think that you can only get pregnant on the day of ovulation. It's not true. I think if we taught young boys about the fertile window, we'd be in a very different spot with reproductive rights and so much more. Also teaching that the rhythm method is not a way to avoid sex. But really, for me, what I hope changes in the coming years is that we make a shift back to biology and we teach people about how the body makes egg and sperm, what happens to your body as you age, because the truth is it affects both of them and not for the reasons that people usually think. It's because meiotic errors in eggs happen more as a woman ages simply because the body is less efficient at cell division as it ages. That's it. It's the whole thing. And men, it's just, it's frustrating. I have two young boys and it's like my mission in life to make sure they grow up knowing all of this stuff, including the fact that women's fertility does start to decline at 35 and theirs does too. Mm -hmm. What are some of the main misconceptions that you see around pregnancy? Oh, the ovulation thing is huge, right? People think that you have to have sex right at the moment of ovulation and that's how that works. They don't understand that sperm can live in the reproductive organs for up to five days. Now, that's very hardy sperm, but three days is very realistic if it's strong sperm. I think that's one thing. That also leads to a lot of unintended pregnancies because nobody knows that sperm can live in there for a while. I think that a lot of people think if you can't get pregnant, your only option is IVF. Also not true. There are many things that you try before IVF. IVF is like the sledgehammer solution. There are many incremental things to try first. And then I think that men shouldn't have an equal part in lifestyle adjustments before conception. I think we tell women that they should be their healthiest selves right before their wedding so they can dress up in a big white dress and get married and have pictures and, you know, look great. And that's just fine. But it's actually much more important for pregnancy because your lifestyle decisions, the way your body goes into pregnancy, dictates how your pregnancy is going to go. And it also dictates the health of your future child. There are all kinds of fascinating studies on how much exercise a woman gets during pregnancy, how that affects a future child's health. So I think we have a long way to go in educating people on, you know, the time to really do that lifestyle shift is before you try to conceive if you're intending to get pregnant. And also, we have to just get back to biology instead of just sex. Mm -hmm. You wrote two books uh, on the topic, basically, of fertility. How do you see that people can manage the discrepancy with not knowing enough and basically between getting too anxious and stressed out because they know what they technically speaking should be doing but aren't? I think this comes down to a belief that I have that 80-20 is right for most people. Conception and pregnancy and parenting it's a long period of time. It's not a week. It's not a month. It's not even just a year. It's the rest of your life. And I think that if we helped people make more easier, simple choices um, that were not uh, so tied up in being perfect, 
that we would be in a better spot with diet, with lifestyle, with all of this. Also, I think that um, we do need to teach people younger about all of this, for sure. We need to teach kids these basic things about nutrition. And also, I think there's this narrative about pregnancy and even about fertility that it's all under your control. If you're on your best behavior, if you make all the right decisions, quote unquote, that somehow things are totally going to work out and it's all going to be fine. Sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. But the reality is you can't always control it. And I think helping people understand that not everything is under their control is another thing that I really strive to do in my writing, not in a stressful way, just in a, listen, do the best you can. Do the best you can 80% of the time. The other 20%, don't punish yourself. Don't hold yourself to an unrealistic standard that you read on the internet. And try to sit back and enjoy it a little bit. Pregnancy is not great for everybody. Fertility journey is really hard for some people too. It's not all puppies and sunshine. It's not all easy either. But I think that we have, we put so much pressure on ourselves to be these perfect beings, these earth mamas, bunnies and rainbows. It's just not always like that. And, and listen, parenting, if you think that you can control everything while you're pregnant, once you have kids, you'll discover that is definitely not under your control. Yeah, it's something that's probably hard to accept for many people. Very hard for many people to accept. And parenting ends up being very humbling if you have taken a while. I mean, listen, even I, while I was writing my first book, thought that all of this, because I had information and I was doing things in a moderate way and trying to make great decisions that it was going to be easy for me. And it was anything but. Biology has a mind of its own. My uterus had a mind of its own. My son had a mind of his own. Things fell apart with the births of both of my kids. I didn't have the birth that I wanted with either one. Did I try my best? Yes. Did I forgive myself for that? Yes. But why am I even... Why should I have to even forgive myself? What did I, I didn't do anything wrong? I think this is the spiral. This is like the shame spiral that so many people experience when something goes, the you know, not according to plan. You've been in the space for a very long time, but you recently published a new book. And for that book, you spoke to various specialists like endocrinologists, nutritionists, fertility specialists, pediatricians, and more. Despite the fact that you already knew a lot, did anything surprise you on this journey uh, and uh, in this research? I think a, a thing that surprises a lot of people is when I talk about egg quality, they often say to me, why didn't anyone ever explain that to me in that way? So oftentimes what happens when you have a miscarriage or when you're not getting pregnant, you'll go to a doctor and they'll say something like, it was just bad luck. And that phrase for me, it was very frustrating. I think it is for many people that I've spoken to because on one hand, some of it is just bad luck. Sometimes a miscarriage happens and it's timing. It's the egg that was ovulated. Technically, it is bad luck. But no one ever took the time to explain to me exactly why that egg became chromosomally abnormal. And it was a fascinating thing writing this book. It didn't deviate very much from my original outline, but the egg chapter, the first time I submitted it to my editors, they said, Leslie, this is short. And I said, I don't know. You can't really do that much about egg quality. It's just an it's an aging biology cell division thing. And they were like, okay, but maybe you should spell that out. And I said, you know what? Maybe I should. Maybe I should really go into depth and teach people the biology lesson that they never got as a kid. And so I did. 
And it was surprising to me that even some doctors outside of the fertility field read it and said, huh, I never thought of explaining it in exactly this way. Do you think that's really what patients want? And I said, yeah, I think it is. It's certainly what I want. And I think it's resonating with people. So hopefully it is. And if not, you can decide at the point of care. But I think patients deserve to have more information. And the only way to get that information right now is by asking. Mm. We talked a lot about biology. What about technology? What role does technology play in the fertility space? You're also an investor. So what kind of solutions do you see on the market? What kind of solutions would you like to see on the market? The fertility industry is fascinating in that it doesn't really abide by the normal rules of the healthcare system because it's largely cash pay or employers have benefits and then it's still, it just lives outside of the traditional healthcare system. So that means that it's not regulated the same way. And that also means that clinics can decide to do whatever they want. And it's led to the growth of a lot of add-on treatments, a lot of what I would consider to be over-treatment. Women undergoing treatment before their male partners are ever tested. I think one thing that I really deeply want to see from a provider perspective is every single fertility clinic following ACOG's guideline that the male partner is tested at the same time the female partner is. But on the technology side, two things. One is we have so much pressure to track everything all the time. And sometimes more data is not always better. It's just more. I think that people put a lot of pressure, like taking the temperatures perfectly and doing all of this stuff and really sometimes just letting go a little bit and listening to your body, following the signs. You can pee on a stick. You can do the things if you're just at the beginning of the journey. But unless it's indicated, it's really best to keep the tracking to a minimum. Keep it to ovulation tracking. Um, it's the same thing happens during pregnancy. Women buy Dopplers and then they try to track the baby's heartbeat during pregnancy. Kick counts are a much better way. Like tracking movement over time is a much better way to see how your baby is doing. Dopplers are so scary for some women because if the baby's turned in a certain way, you can't find a heartbeat. So I think technology's got a lot to offer in both industries. Infertility specifically, embryology is a major point of failure for IVF clinics. It's the most expensive. Building out an embryology lab is the most expensive part of opening up a fertility clinic. So that's the first thing. It's very expensive. The equipment's expensive. But also, some clinics are still storing embryos in ways that would make you and I cringe. In freezers that don't have backup power, they're not centralized, they're all just at the clinics. Some clinics have incredible freezer technology, and they have a lot of infrastructure. It's not feasible for every single clinic in the world to have that kind of multi-million dollar infrastructure. So I think when I look at a huge opportunity in the space, and it's actually an, uh, an investment I did recently, I think Conceivable Life Sciences is doing something very important, which is they are adding robotics and AI to embryology to both reduce the number of people that are required to work in those labs, moving it from potentially 40 people to five, which would be amazing because it's also very hard to hire uh, an embryologist. Uh, and then also taking a lot of the guesswork and a lot of the human error out of it. Because honestly, if your embryologist had a bad night and came into work hungover, it may not matter how perfectly you adhered to your shot protocol or anything else. Because they estimate that around 20% of retrieved eggs are lost in the Petri dish. So it's really quite appalling when you get into the actual logistics. Like I think about things 
I have a design background. I'm always very interested in the design of a system. So before I made that investment, I talked to a lot of, I'd already talked to a lot of reproductive endocrinologists about the way that their clinics worked and the way that they looked at things. And I think it's just a lot of potential. I think there's also a lot of junk out there, a lot of unnecessary treatments and a lot of unnecessary IVF add-ons happening. Mm -hmm. Since you mentioned data and uh, tracking, I think that's a really interesting question, especially in light of just the recent changes in the last two years uh, in the U.S. around access to abortion, around access to contraception and basically criminalization of abortion and the fact that if you're using an app and that app provider gets a court order, they you can't necessarily prevent them from sharing your data to file a case against you. So how do you see that challenge when we're talking about the data and fertility and uh, apps? Personally, I find that repugnant, but I think it's our job always, even though sometimes we don't always do it, reading the terms and conditions of the apps that we're using, especially with self-tracked health data, because I think the 23andMe leak this week is another sign. So there was a lot of, there was a, the database was hacked and a bunch of information about Ashkenazi Jews was put on the dark web, apparently, for people to buy. And I think we have to think really clearly about the risks of putting that information somewhere that's not just at our house or in a calendar or whatever. I'm not saying we should go back to paper calendars, but there are some apps that say very clearly in the terms of service, they will never share your data and they don't. And, or you can sign up anonymously and do it. You probably won't have everything work, but I think it's our job as consumers to understand what we're signing up for and also for companies to have an ethical approach to this and ensure that when people are signing up, they understand what they're signing up for. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting perspective because I come from Europe and like my perspective on that is the regulation needs to take care of that. I, as a consumer, shouldn't have all the responsibility because tech is too complicated, it's moving too fast, and it's impossible to follow all the progress that's happening. And who are we to say that in two years, the company is just not going to change those terms and conditions? I also wanted to ask you, when we talk about fertility and also, for example, access to IVF, which is poor in the US, if you look yeah, accessibility is poor. It's expensive. You've got other countries that have at least a few cycles that you can get for free, and that's not the case in the U.S. Where do you see the role of policy and regulation and change changes in medical clinical guidelines to improve the situation in the fertility market and access to care? In the U.S., there are a handful of states that grant access to fertility services, but not nearly enough. Let's be honest. It's not enough. And the people that it disadvantages the most are the most disadvantaged. It's, it's poor families that suffer the most. And ironically, culturally, they are the people who are least likely to seek help in the first place. So not only can they not pay for it, even if they wanted it, they're probably going to take longer to seek care than other, other cultural groups. So I think it's very hard. I wish that there was universal coverage of fertility because it's not optional. People still see it that way. People see it as having a child is optional. It's not something that everyone should pay for. And I think part of this is because it's the only disease that is actually diagnosed by an absence of something. It's not a presence of a symptom. It's the absence of a pregnancy. 
But I think our discourse on this has to change. It shouldn't be. It, I don't see a world in which making this optional is appropriate. I think it's everyone's right to have a family if they want one. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier that you are investor. So what kind of business models do you see work well in the fertility space? And if you can mention any of the solutions that you got interested in or you invested in and uh, why. So what works? In the, on the long run. I'm a very longtime Maven advisor and supporter and fan of what they're doing. Um, I think a platform approach is the kind of the best way for things to work right now. So I think that it's really challenging. I see a lot of companies coming up with point solutions to treat one particular gynecological condition or one particular population. And these are very important, right? These are important things, but they're not appropriate for venture capital. And they're not really even that appropriate for angel investment because angel investors expect a similar kind of return. That's why you put your money into a risky asset. You have to expect that at least one of the one of 10 is going to end up blowing up in a good way. So I think that it's very hard. I think healthcare has a real problem because on one hand, there are there's so much tremendous need. And also it is very hard and it takes a long time and a lot of money And there are a lot of big incumbent players that already own certain parts of the pipeline. But I think that there are also a lot of promising areas coming up. I'm not nearly as invested and interested in things that just put a patch on the system that we have. I'm much more excited about blowing it up and starting over or reinventing something that's fundamentally broken. So Conceivable Life Sciences is one that I did recently, which for me felt so obvious when I started digging into it. Of course. If you would just string together the right pieces of technology and the right software to help people do this job more effectively without so much human error, and it's crazy how much human error there is, wonderful. For Maven, going to employers, going to payers, and allowing people to invest those dollars themselves into, into the treatments that they want like a, a, a workaround for now, but until we have universal coverage, I think it's the best we've got. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I, so we very touched upon very little on the challenges that men faced in the infertility space. So maybe you can add a little bit about that. I know that you wrote a, about the problem of specialists for men. And yeah. yeah. So with men's health, it's there's there are about 1,300 reproductive endocrinologists in the U.S., which is not enough, not nearly enough to treat the patients that need it here. There are only around 200 reproductive urologists, and those are the specialists that treat men. And so when we look at the need and when we look at the numbers, like one in six people is going to struggle with fertility, their fertility during their reproductive years, it evenly splits across men and women. It's one in three. We have 200 people in the U.S. who can currently treat it. And so I think that The number one thing is men need more education about their bodies. Men need to be brought into the healthcare system in a respectful way. I think we can, like, not make penis jokes and not make lesser than jokes. It has to be respectful. It has to be welcoming and empathetic. And I think we also have to make it easier for them to seek care. I think telemedicine is a powerful tool when it comes to men's health. Not all men want to go to a doctor's office unless something is actually falling off. The Cleveland Clinic actually publishes some pretty great studies on men's relationship with the healthcare system in general. But there's a company called Posterity Health, I think, that is now the largest practice of reproductive urologists in the country. 
and they're working with providers and fertility benefits companies to provide that service to men more at scale. So scaling the supply that we have. But yeah, there are not nearly enough people to fill the demand. Mm -hmm. What do the numbers say in terms of the trends in the investments in the fertility space? And what are you observing in the investor community around the discussions about fertility? About men's health in specific or just, no, no, just oh, general fertility? Yeah, it's booming. There's a lot of money going into fertility right now. I would argue a lot of it's going into things that are not necessarily a great use of money. I think there are some companies out there that are not behaving ethically. I think there's a lot of waste. I think there's a lot of overpromising benefits to consumers that really bothers me. But certainly the fertility investment space is absolutely blowing up and it should because there is so much unmet need. I think it's also blowing up because some almost 30% of IVF cycles in the U.S. are now done by a clinic that is owned by private equity. So it's really interesting because it's also a money machine. It's an absolute money machine. We just And I think this is going to be the last question, but one thing that I started thinking is that when we increase the awareness about what pregnancy is, what trying to get pregnant means for some people with all the challenges, with also all the basically emotional burden that it brings with it and everything that comes after the birth, are you observing any changes in terms of the expectations from women or, yeah, mostly from women around these topics and basically their ambitions also, if they're entrepreneurs and just things like that. The number one reason women freeze eggs is not because they want to be more ambitious at work. It's because they can't find a partner. That is another reason that it's so important to help bring up men because men die younger. Men are unhealthier. They have more chronic conditions, comorbidities, all of the things more mental health problems, more suicides. Like they are a step function unhealthier than women in every category. And if you're a high functioning woman and you look around and that's all you see, who wants that? It's a hard problem to solve. But I think, again, it all starts with kids and parents. I think it has to start in our homes. If you're a parent of a young child, the right time to start talking about all of this is soon and not in a sexual way just call body parts what they are it's just biology it doesn't have to be sexual that can come later but for now let's just call most girls don't know the difference between a vagina and a vulva most adult women don't know this either so it's not really surprising but and not make it so taboo because it's just the human body and i think that's really the message that i've been surprised and happy to hear has been resonating with people with fertility rules, which is that I have a lot of parents of teenage girls who are reading it with their kids. And it's amazing because they say, oh my God, I didn't know this. <laughs> and how powerful is it to read something with a parent and, ha and realize that they actually don't know everything they're learning with you, make it a bonding moment. I'm a parent of a two-year-old and a four-year-old, both boys. They're going to know all of this stuff. But I really believe strongly that the system failed us, but we don't have to fail our kids. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to the show or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, 
check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned. <laughs>